welcome to episode two of Off the Page, the new podcast from International Literature Festival Dublin. This week we are revisiting a 2015 interview with Irvin Welsh in conversation with Sinead Gleeson. Music is provided by Trepetto with vocals from Louise Gaffney. be all the people you lived beside when you lived in Dublin. They're all coming to see <laughs> um, I'll just tell you a little bit about Irvine Welsh, unless you, you know, I'm sure you all know, but just in case. Um, Irvine Welsh had a, a series of, of, of jobs that he probably wouldn't want me to detail or list here, but in 1993 he published a book called Train Spotting. Um, about a year later, a friend in Scotland sent it to me, um, and I'd never read anything like it. It was really in, incendiary and explosive and, and terribly funny and, and rude uh, and, and just not like anything else. Um, it was a cult classic, and in a lot of ways I think it made Irvine's name, um, and he's been very prolific in his output since then. Uh, there's been screenplays and scripts, um, four short story collections, uh, ten novels, and the latest book, uh, A Decent Ride, resurrects a character some of you will know, is Terry the Duke. Terry the Juice Lawson. Um, and the book focuses on a lot of things. I mean, there's a lot of shagging and hedonism and all sorts of crazy stuff going on in the book. But it's also about mortality and about sort of rolling with what life throws at you. Um, and I don't think everyone's ever been afraid to, to tackle dark subjects um, from drugs to necrophilia to paedophilia. And also somebody who sort of looks at class division and, you know, and poverty, not to mention football. And I should say right now that I must apologise to Irvine because I know a couple of kilometres up the road, Bows are playing Bray Wanders and instead he's here talking to me. So I apologise for that. Um, but let me start by asking you, you, I mentioned that you lived in Dublin a few years ago and you... What was the city like when you were there as opposed to now? It's gone through a lot of changes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to kind of... Um, I mean, it's, it's hard to look at a sort of place and to, to see the way it's changed. Um, you don't really know unless you're here all the time, I think. You know, it's like... Uh, I always thought that, uh, you know, when, when everything kind of sort of... Um, when the Celtic Tiger kind of sort of burst in the recession and the banks kind of came in and all that... I never really saw. I never really saw the sort of uh, the decline in Dublin so much as I did in the country. It was always more recognisable in the country. Dublin seemed to kind of um, to kind of seem to be holding its own. I mean, people were still going out and having fun and sort of, uh, and, you know, and uh, it still seems busy and it still seems kind of um, there's still a sort of party kind of attitude about the place. Uh, I don't know how. I don't know if it's if it's because people are kind of just um, borrowing money to go out. So basically, and uh, <laughs> and it's like you know, is um, I I went out with some pals about maybe about two years after I moved, and um, I said I thought there was a big recession, you know, I thought the Celtic Tiger was over, and um, my mate goes, it's over when we say it's fucking over, you know? <laughs> not the fucking banks. So I think you know, so I think that is, that that was the sort of um, the attitude that seemed to hold sway. Uh, but whenever I, whenever I go to the country, I, I can see it's a lot more depressed now. But uh, I think the thing with Dublin was that there was you know there's so much investment in infrastructure with you know with the Lewis and the, the tunnel and um, the the ring kind of road and all that stuff. And it, I think it's meant that things couldn't fall beyond a certain level. I mean, it's still a 
it still attracts a lot of investment and it's, it's still kind of, um, it still seems to be vibrant. It's funny, we were talking earlier about dockers that you'd worked on with Jimmy McGovern and that was a lot of that was shot in Dublin and I think it was because at that time the docks looked so crappy here but not now <laughs> they look a lot different. Yeah, they're too squished now. We wouldn't be able to shoot anything like that. We'd actually have to use Liverpool now. <laughs> well, let's talk about uh, the new book and Terry. Uh, obviously, he's been in... People will know him from, from Porno uh, and Glue, and he was in um, the I Am Miami story in Reheated Cabbage. Why did you resurrect him? Why did you go back to him? Um, I think any character... I mean, Terry's obsessed, you know, compulsive obsessive. He's got one thing on his mind all the time. And um, any character that's like that becomes pretty kind of ridiculous, basically, and great fun, great fun to write. Um, inherently ludicrous, but uh, because if, you ha if, you, if your view of the world is very narrow and constrained and that narrow bandwidth, there's always going to be something that's going to fuck it up, basically, you know, and you've got... And then, so when things start to go kind of um, askew like that, it's great to watch a character and, ha and how they... and to write a character and how they would respond to these new challenges. He's also, he's a bit of a, a womanizer. he's a bit of a, 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 he's quite enterprising, he's driving a car, but he's a bit of a jack of all trades, a bit of a bowsy really. Um, but where is he at in his life as we meet him now? What's going on? Yeah, he's driving a cab, he's still doing kind of gonzo porn movies, uh, which is his main kind of, the main reason he drives a cab is to kind of sort of pick up women and get them involved in these activities. Uh, and also to deal drugs to people. He's not really interested in fares as such. It's more of a, <laughs> it's a cover to keep him mobile and to keep him doing what he does best, basically. Um, you're going to read from the book, but you're going to maybe bring Terry to life a little bit for us, I think. Yeah, I mean, what I should do first is find a book to read from. I don't, I don't have one with me. Have you got, you got one over there? No. Did you not bring it's, your book? I've never bring a book. No, I always assume that there's going to be one there. <laughs> we'll get one. But, uh, boom. <laughs> And I, I would have the brought mine. The first technical hitch of the day. We'll just chat on. I, I actually, I would have brought mine, but I interviewed Irvin earlier for radio, and I left my book in his room. Oh, so that's here's, why I don't here have we mine. go. Excellent. Thank you. Here we go. Ah. So Terry, right. Terry's going to magically appear before yeah, your Yeah, Terry's eyes. going to appear before your eyes. Um, what I'm going to do? I'm going to try and bring him to life a little bit here. Um, what's happening with uh, with Terry is that um, it's during the. It's during the height of um, the first hurricane to hit Scotland in 100 years. It was, was Hurricane Bobag, it was called. Um, and um, let me see what's, what's the best one to do. Um, Yep, sorry about this, folks. I've, uh... Yeah, I mean, what happened with Hurricane Bobag was that um, it too, it kind of, everybody in Scotland felt that um, didn't take this hurricane seriously at all. You know, and we were kind of given all these warnings about it. And I was living in America at the time, and... Um, it was that kind of, uh, that thing about, everybody had this thing about in America, about Hurricane Katrina, you know. And I, would, I used to say, like, uh, to people that, um, oh, this is, uh, this Hurricane Katrina, you know, they, they go, this Hurricane Katrina is going to devastate, uh, you know, th this hurricane, what, what is it you call this hurricane? And I didn't know its real name because everybody called it Bobag. And, 
They said, you've got to have levies and you've got to have all this stuff. You've got to have all this um, kind of defensive stuff up because the hurricane is going to decimate your country. And everybody, was, everybody in Scotland was kind of going, well, it's just strong winds, really. It's just gales, you know. There's nothing really bad that's going to happen. So, um, so this is like uh, looking, at the, looking at the difference in kind of you know, the, the cultural differences. Uh, also, when I started to write this book, it was like uh, the referendum in Scotland was kind of mooted. And everybody was thinking about it in big cataclysmic kind of terms. It's going to be a, a disaster if we vote yes to independence. So everybody's going to be dying in the streets. Or it's going to be, you know, we're going to go into the land of milk and honey and all this stuff. But everybody knows that it's just going to be pretty much the same, really. Probably a bit better, but uh, not that different. So I was kind of re- reacting against this. Um, for some reason, I can't find this chapter. I don't know why. Let me see. Let me see. Let me see. Uh, here we go. Right, at last, here we go. So what I've got to do, yeah, to, to summon Juice Terry, I've got to kind of, um, I'll take off this coat and make myself a bit more comfortable. And what you need for Juice Terry is you, you've got to find a bit of bling first, like, you know, see, if I can, see if I can find a bit of bling. I think this bling seen better days. We'll have to di- we'll dispense with the bling. Um, <laughs> see, um, a pair of a pair of sun a pair of dark glasses, like kind of um, Ian Hunter and Motley Hoople glasses. But most of all, the the permed wig, like you know, <laughs> which is a uh, which is the ultimate Juice Terry kind of thing. He's he's very he's very proud of his locks, and it's actually great for me to have a bit of hair again and to to. to <laughs> To get with us, I feel like I've kind of um, just catapulted back into the 70s. It's brilliant. So this is just Terry driving the cab. And this chapter is called The Bag of the Ball. Hurricane Bobag's about to hit Edinburgh. Talk about fucking warning bells. It's pishing wet with eight gales. And there's this lassie out walking down Queen's Ferry Road, which is fucking deserted. She's heading towards the fourth road bridge. At this time, and in this fucking weather. Affairs are fair, but eh? And besides, the jumpers are usually guys. Very seldom do you get Fanny try to top itself in that way. <laughs> Aye, they sent us on a fucking course so as we could spot the Harry Carry crew. They tell us all the things that you need to say to get them not to jump, like counselling and that. No, that I ever fucking will bother, eh? Some cunt wants to jump, let them fucking well jump. <laughs> Nanny that fucking nanny state, George Bernard Shaw's. Some cunts made up their mind about it, they must have good fucking reasons. It's no for the likes of a total stranger to come along and say something different. Wouldn't they be me anyway? Jump off a cliff, then some bird phones you up the next day, deciding she's going to give you your hole after all. Nah, fuck that. Too much to live for me, but eh? Mind you, I can understand how some gadgets that aren't getting a ride would want to jump. Fuck that for a game of soldiers. But with a bird that's different, nobody in their right mind wants to see good fanny going to waste. 
A bird's minge is meant to be hot for the rumpy pumpy. No cold stretched out in a slab. Though there's some dirty cunts that would go for that. I blame the fucking internet myself. Letting bairns watch extreme porn when they've not even had proper wank yet. That shite would fuck anybody's heat up. Too right. I mean, I've made the odd scud flick. Aye, but it's I being consenting adults. No dodgy stuff. So I stops, and the lassie gets into the cab. Her black hair's plastered to her heat by the rain. Her long black coat's heavy with it. Her eyes are all fogged over. All right, doll. Bit blustery to be out, eh? Never heard the ball bag. <laughs> but this bird, she's just standing there, staring off, sitting there, staring off into space with her dark eyes, probably brown, setting a roundish face. The lights are on, but there's no cunt him. <laughs> the bridge, she says in this accent that's either posh Scottish or English. So what's happening out at the bridge? She looks at us all offended like it's none of my business. Didn't he look at us like that? I'm gone, with that moosey face on. See if you jump off that bridge. It's my case that the police got on. I've got to ask their questions. She's looking at me in that wide-eyed horror like the birds in their movies like Scream, but kind of no sort of like Scream either because her moose gone all tight like I've rumbled her. But that's up to you, I shrugs. It's your business. Just tell me if you are so I can give the busy some story. Like you tell us you were going to your sisters in Inverkeething. Then you say you were sick and you had to get out and puke. And the next thing, you'd couch yourself right out of that rail. That sort of shite. Got to cover my arse, but eh? She puts her head in her hands and mumbles something I didn't catch, then jerks up and goes, I can get out here. No, I'll take you to the bridge. I shakes my head. See, the way I see it, if you're determined to do it, you will. And it's fucking kicking up big time outside. You might as well go out there in comfort. And she doesn't even flinch at that. Tell you one thing, but... Puts her in the picture. You're not getting out of this cab without paying your fare first. <laughs> I wasn't. I, I've got money. She reaches into her purse. How much? 70 pounds and some change. I'm not being wide, I goes glancing in the mirror, but you might as well hand it over. <laughs> if you're sure, like, just it'd be a waste of dosh, eh? Jumping with all that in your pockets. I'm not being wide, likes. <laughs> the bird looks angry, staring at us for the first time, then sort of settles back in the seat. If I was ever in any doubt that this was the right time to leave this fucking place, you would have convinced me. And she reaches forward again and shows me the contents of the purse. I stops at the red light, turns and reaches through the Judas hole to take the poppy, crams it in my pocket. The road's empty and thank fuck. I'm not being funny and I'm not trying to stop you. Jen up. But I've got to ask, what's a good looking young lassie like you want to do this for? You wouldn't understand. She shakes her head. Nobody does. Well, I ex explain it to you, so I goes, because it says in the course, get them talking. <laughs> What's your name? I'm Terry, by the way. I get Kent as Juice Terry, because I worked on the juice lorries way back. Sometimes Scud Terry, because, well, I'll no bore you with all the details. <laughs> My name is Sarah Ann Lamont. She says like she's a robot. 
I get called Sal, S-A-L, Sarah Anne Lamont. You feel up here, Sal? Yes, Portobello originally, but I've lived in London for years. Lamont, you said, aye? Yeah, at least it isn't a Lawson. Thank fuck. You've got to check with that cunt of an old man of mine having chucked his spunker in tune like a lunatic spraying asylum was. What's it you did in there like? What line of work are you in? Another bitter wee shrug. Then she pushes the wet tresses of hair out her eyes. I write plays that the rest of the world seems to disagree. Nay, fairly in there. Nay, he'll be worried about you. Ha! She laughs, all sort of cynical. I'm fleeing an emotionally abusive relationship. I'm back in my home city with a specially commissioned play at the Traverse. It was supposed to be the return of the prodigal daughter. But the critics have not been kind and I've had enough. Does that answer your question? So you're going to kill yourself out of felly and a play. You don't understand. Find another felly. Write another play if that you wish, shite. <laughs> I shot this prisoner of war scud flick once. They do like it up him. Wasn't it that great? But it didn't deter me. It wasn't shite, she goes. <laughs> now all angry for the first time. You don't get it, but I'm not surprised. All right. So the bird's going to be fish food in 20 minutes, but I'm not that struck in her partner, eh? Oh, I see. I didn't understand because I drive a cab, is that it? Because I drive a ca- taxi. I can't even be expected to understand the complex mind of the artiste. I didn't say that. I've done a fair bit of acting. No stage but screen. And I understand the process. I can tell you. I'm telling her. People think Scud's just about banging away. But as my mate Sick Boy I says, we're telling a story here, and you've got to ken your lines, and you've got to hit your mark. I'm not saying that I'm Brad Pitt, but then again, I'm not saying that cunt's just Terry. <laughs> <laughs> Last year, when we were shooting Doctor Scheme, a thorough examination, I had to stick one thermometer up this bird's fanny, the other up her arse, and say, the hardest hole is the one that gets this fat dick baby. Sounds fucking straightforward enough, but it's not that easy when there's cameras on you, lights shining in your coupon, a boom mic overhead, and sick boy fucking prancing about shouting orders at you. But she's off on one bit, eh? All good. Let them talk, the boy in the course says. All I ever wanted to do was write. Four years of my life went into that play, and they didn't get it. They didn't get me. The sneering men, I could understand that cabal of sad old queens, but when the jealous fucking so-called sisters turned on me, she shakes her head, letting me wet locks fly. No, I've had enough. I thought, there's no lot you can say to that. I look at her in the mirror. She kind of reminds me a bit of that bird for Liverpool that I made anal torpedo three with. <laughs> that was when I played the captain on the whaling ship. Crewed by lassies, all wearing fishnet tights. Catchphrase, there she blows. (laughs) She's gone all quiet as we're passing the barn and roundabout. Her hands clasped together on her lap, her head bowed, staring at them. 
So I think, fuck it, I'll make a wee move here. Listen, this might seem a wee bit cheeky, Sal, but can I ask you a favour? She looks at us like I'm fucking tapped. What? You want a favour for me? What favour can I do for anyone now? Well, I'm just wondering, see if you're in any big hurry. I shrugged, giving her a cheeky wee smile. Any chance to arrive before you jump? <laughs> what? Her face sort of twists and then she's silent again. Suits me. She's not saying I, but she's not saying no. <laughs> I was just wondering, Sal, I can't say a wee bit cheeky, but the quiet burn gets out. Maybe just go out with a bang. Last night on earth, I goes. Tell you what, I give you a good fucking count. Pardon my French. <laughs> you want to have sex with me? Ha! Suicide Sal laughs and her voice goes all high like she can't believe what she's hearing. And fuck, she's getting out of her coat and pulling off her jumper. She's sitting there in a black bra. Go ahead, pull up, do what the fuck you like. And I does that all right, heading off that slip road just before the bridge toll booth comes into view. The howling wind is that strong, I can barely move the door at first. But with a ride in the back, it could be on its side and buried under an avalanche. I'd still be able to fucking well open it. <laughs> Fasten your seatbelts, hen, I shouts to her, because we could be in for some offy bumpy, rumpy pumpy. <laughs> Thank you for listening, folks. <laughs> yeah. We definitely get a sense of what Terry's day-to-day -day is there. You know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> birds and taxis and, you know, and, and making porn. But something happens in the book that sort of his life gets, goes off in a direction that I don't think he fore foresees. Um, and he has to sort of make different choices and do different things. Yeah, I mean, he kind of, um, he basically has to, you know, he, he can't, uh, without putting in any spoilers, he can't live the life that he's been living and he has to reorder his life. Uh, which is traumatic for him, basically. And uh, it means that he has to have a relationship with his family. So he has to have a relationship with his children. He has to have a relationship with his mother and his father, even. Uh, he has to... Um, and he, he takes all these kind of interests. I mean, he gets interested in literature. He gets interested in golf. Um, and he, has, he, he gets interested in two people, particularly. Um, one guy who's... Uh, who's kind of a bit crazy and a bit weird, who's, who seems to have killed his wife. And uh, another guy who's uh, uh, an American guy who's a property developer who's trying to build a golf course in Scotland. So he gets mixed up with these two unlikely kind of characters, basically. And it is a kind of, it's a, a kind of ship of fools book, I suppose. Tell me about Jaunty. Um, Jaunty's a kind of... Um, is a is one of these guys that you kind of meet um you meet everywhere he's he's a, just a guy who's fallen through the cracks basically and uh you see a lot you see this this kind of guys a lot in scotland you see them a lot in ireland as well there was a great film um don't know if anybody's seen garage by lenny abramson uh with pat short plays a, it's, a, it's a character very much like that he's just a character who's maybe a little bit slow but because of that, he's kind of he's been left to to go almost feral. Basically, he's not had much schooling. He's um, and he's just basically nobody's looked after him, and he and he wants to be looked after basically, and he or he wants a, 
a family or a group of people or a group of friends around them. Uh, so in some ways he's quite a tragic figure, but in other ways I think he's a very resourceful figure as well. You know, he's, he's kind of, he, he does some kind of very uh, acute survival skills. And he's a bit of a project for, for, uh, for Terry as well. Yeah, I mean, I think Terry kind of, um, Terry sees, you know, sort of gets into this thing where he realizes that um, when, he's, when he's kind of one track kind of sort of focus and he's haze on kind of picking up women and having sex, when that goes out of his head, he actually realizes that he's caused a lot of collateral damage uh, in the process to, to people and friendships and all that. And he sees Jonty as a kind of redemptive project for him in a way. He sees by helping Jonty, he's going to sort of, um, he's going to kind of um, make up some of the mistakes that he's made with friendships in the past. You mentioned um, Sick Boy there. I think a lot of people would be glad to see the, the return of him, um, which makes us think of, well, maybe not, <laughs> uh, which, which makes us think of like, it makes you hark back to train spotting. And I'm thinking about when you wrote train spotting and it was your first book. Um, what was the city like and what was the, the place like and what were the people around you that you're trying to represent? What was it like in, in the early 90s, late 80s in, in Edinburgh? Um, well, I, I kind of wrote uh, Trainspotting because I was kind of... Um, you know, I'd had the issues with the drug myself and I was going to a lot of funerals of people uh, in the area of Edinburgh that I grew up in, Muirhouse, I was going to a lot of old pals' funerals and kind of very quite young people you know, and uh, people in the in the 20s. And I was thinking that um, we've got a fucking epidemic in this scheme. You know, there's people dying of, of AIDS. And uh, all we're getting in the local paper is fucking Dutch elm disease and Princess Street's killing the trees. You know, so I thought, why is it we kind of, what, what is this strange duality about kind of, um, you know, why is it that a whole completely different official narrative of life in the city uh, and this whole submerged kind of stories that, that just aren't being told, you know, and, um, and it was kind of what really wanting to tell that sort of story, not from the point of view of making people out to be kind of cold statistics or making them out to be victims, uh, but making them out to be kind of, you know, like, like everybody is, everybody's a, the central character in their own drama. It doesn't matter who, you know, I mean, this is the thing with, with Terry in this book, he sees himself very much, and he is very much the central character in his own drama. An egotistical, rich American guy, Ronnie, can't understand that because he feels that he should be the central character in everybody's drama, as people, you know, as, as people that have wealth and privilege kind of feel, you know. So, um, you know, and it, it seemed to me that, uh, you know, going back to train spotting in that era, that, you know, that. Uh, the stories of how people were actually living and the, the stories of what people were doing uh, weren't being represented and weren't being told in, in any kind of meaningful way by local media or in, or in fiction or in, you know, in, in the, the culture in general. So I kind of wanted to sort of uh, to tell these kind of stories and to, and to introduce these characters to fiction that I didn't see in fiction. What was it that made you get into heroin yourself? Um, prob just like... In some ways, it was like it, you know the reason, the same reason that I got into um, smoking dope or, or drinking alcohol, basically, just because it was there. And my friends were doing it, and I was stupid and young and daft, um, and I didn't really know. Th I didn't really know the consequences of it because there was no real kind of drug education at the time, you know, as there is now. Uh, people are quite aware of what drugs do to them now, even though they, you know, and I think now 
people with housing schemes take drugs because it's all that is there. There is no economy, there is no work, um, there is no education opportunities. So drugs kind of win by default, almost. Uh, it wasn't the case when I was younger. There was full employment. There was, you know, the jobs weren't great, but you could you could walk out a job and walk into another one the next day, basically. Um, and uh, to me, it was it was just adventurism, and it was like I just didn't think that it could hurt me or do me any damage because um, when I was a kid, my mum used to say to me, "Don't take drugs, don't take drugs." And chance would be a fine thing. You never found could never find any <laughs> to take. There was none. <laughs> I mean, drugs were in Scotland in, in the 70s was like pints of heavy. And anybody who smoked a bit of dope was some kind of weird kind of um, bohemian fruitcake, like, you know. <laughs> and I remember the, the most nervous I've ever been taking any drug was when I had my first joint and smoked and, and took a puff in this first joint. I thought I was just going to keel over and die instantly. Uh, and it didn't, you know. And then the same thing with speed. You know, I took some speed at... Uh, uh, Northern Soul Night didn't fall over and die, you know, took some acid, freaked out, but didn't fall over and die. Um, and again, heroin, I mean, I didn't, but it did get a grip on me, and it was a, you know, it was a much more dangerous drug, I think, than the other drugs that I'd um, experienced. But you don't really know that, because, you know, and it was like, uh, it was a situation of ignorance, basically. Where, where did you go from the point where you had those jobs, as you were saying, you could move around and you had dabbled in drugs? What was the point where you said to yourself that maybe, there's a, there, was there one moment where you said, you know, I think I'd like to give it up, I'd like to be a writer, I'm going to try and do this, and, and how did it come about? Um, the writing for me kind of grew out of music because um, when I messed around in bands, um, I was a terrible musician and I was always aware that uh, I would get, I would, I would be the guy who always wanted to get a kind of band together and find musicians and we'd get a group together. And then suddenly I'd realise that they would all leave, you know, and I'd be <laughs> left I'd be left alone. They'd all be in different <laughs> Can groups. Can I tell you something? And I would be kind of um and one day a, a pal said to me, like, um, you know, you the reason people leave is because you're crap. You, know, you, can't, <laughs> you can't you can't keep up, you know, you kind of um you're just not, you know, and I, wa I was a terrible guitarist, I've got a terrible voice, I, kinda, I wasn't a great bassist, and um, so I kind of realised that um, what I did, I thought that I did well was to write songs uh, quite well, but I realised that the, the part that I thought that I wrote well, the music actually wasn't very good. What was good about it was the, um, was the fact that the songs were ballads, they were telling stories, you know, there was, mm. there was a, they were, you know, so I realised that I was a storyteller and I was kind of... Um, I was telling a story in song, and I thought, well, just get rid of the song and stick to the story. So it kind of came out of that um, kind of long, painful realization, really, that this was the way that um, I could um, I could express myself. Because, you know, growing up, as I did, I mean, I, everybody had music, everybody played music, and you were surrounded by records, and you bought records as soon as you could, and you listened to records, and you swapped them, and you listened to all the relatives kind of stuff and all that. and um, you were just very much immersed in that. But there were no books. You know, there's no books in the house that I grew up in because it was a small council house and there wasn't room for shelves and all that. So you're drawn to music first. And I thought if I, if I, if I expressed myself creatively, because I kind of knew from an early age that I wasn't really cut out to do a proper job. You know, I wasn't really cut out from... School tells you, if how you got on at school tells you you're not really going to be a nine-to-five type of person. Um, and I thought, I have to do something kind of creative where I can make more in hours. And I always assumed it would be music because of that sort of um, interface that I had. I mean, I grew up surrounded by storytellers, but it's that kind of Celtic oral storytelling tradition thing. Nobody set it down to paper, you know, so I didn't really assume 
that writing was a, a legitimate avenue for me. But you have DJed as well. Sorry? You have DJed as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you still get to do it. But it, to go back to Trainspotting for a minute, there's a sense that w when I read it, uh, in terms of all the, any Scottish writers I'd read, um, it didn't seem like there was anything like it at the time. It didn't seem like anything else. W were you aware of how different it was and that it was going to shake things up? And there'd probably be some opposition to it. Um, yeah, I, d I didn't really think about that, that at the time. I mean, uh, <coughs> the thing that you... When you, when you write a book, it becomes... Um, it's a very all-consuming thing, you know. It's like you can't do it as a sort of um, as a part-time thing. You really live chunks of it, you know. You're really immersed in it, and uh, you're so immersed in getting the thing right, you don't really think about it in terms of the reaction it's going to have. And uh, for me, what I found that um, it would have probably freaked me out if I thought about it too much. But when I started to do the first book, I realised that I liked writing. And when I finished the first book, I went straight on to the second book. And by the time it was going through the system and it was coming out and being published, and everybody was saying, to, well, a lot of people were saying to me, this is great, this book's going to be successful. And it's like, you know, I was so immersed in writing the second one and the third one after that that I wasn't really, I didn't really have my eye on the ball in terms of um, getting there to promote it. And I think, um, I think that's the thing, when you know you're a, a proper writer, when you have to be dragged along, to getting involved in promoting the book. You just want to get on with the next thing. And you know, the, the next thing is the one, once the book's finished, it's kind of dead really to you. And the next thing is the one that really excites your passions. The thing w when I read it, what struck me and I think strikes a lot of people is, is the language and the way it's written and the fact that it's been written about working class people. And I think Roddy Doyle did that in Ireland as well, writing about the working classes and writing about them in their own, their own voice. Did you have any point when you started to write this know that you would write that way or try to stop yourself or censor yourself from writing in that voice, you know, the very phonetic way of... Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't intend to because um, I kind of, you know, I wanted, you know, because you, you, the way you're taught to write is you're taught to write in standard English, you know, and I wanted to write in standard English because I didn't know any other way, basically. Um, and then I wrote the first few chapters in standard English. It was terrible. It read absolutely awful. I thought, I can't, it's just pretentious. You know, the characters weren't coming to me in that way. I wasn't getting the sense of who they were from, from this kind of, this lie, basically, that I was kind of concocting around them. Um, so I had to kind of, you know, I had to write, I had to find the words that would work, you know. And I, I looked at um, a lot of people who'd done different stuff, you know, a lot of writers who'd kind of ex uh, experimented in Scots, kind of writing in, in various dialects of Scots. And uh, the first kind of, when I first wrote, when I wrote the first chapter, I thought, this is terrible. I can't understand the words of this myself. How is anybody else going to be able to read <laughs> yeah. it? You know, because you're just not used to seeing words like that visually on a page. Even if, you know, it doesn't matter if you're Scottish or South African or New Zealand or, you know, it's like you just don't, you're not used to words being written that way. So um, it was like, um, it took me a while to kind of, uh, to get the confidence to, and off that kind, to get the rhythms of it right. And once I found that I got the rhythm of it, you know, the performative kind of sort of rhythm of it, um, it was a bit like, kind of almost like writing music in a sense. You know, you got you, you you got it to sound right rather than look right. You know, and so I focus much more on the sound and how it seemed to be to my ear rather than how it actually looked on the page. Because if I, if I focus on how it looked on the page, I would never have uh, done anything with it. But it's funny you say that about how it looks on the page because you have sort of messed around with the type on the page before. I mean, we get the uh, the tapeworm uh, in a decent ride. We get the point of view of Terry's penis. Um, we also get the point of view of a fly. 
in the asset house. So uh, again, you mess with the voices, but the way it's physically on the page is, is not your average way of doing things. Yeah, I mean, I had this idea that, um, and I think it was because I was, uh, when I started writing, I was seriously into raving. I was a big kind of sort of, um, you know, I, I had that kind of scare with heroin, so I went very anti-drugs for a while, and I became a bit of a, a sort of, um, a kind of stiff arsed kind of yuppie, really, you know, and I thought, I'm not going <laughs> to... I can't uh, imagine this. <laughs> drugs, uh, done that, <laughs> <laughs> beneath me. But um, <laughs> for, for now, I was, al I was also kind of thinking, well, you're actually quite a boring bastard. Like, you know, you kind of um, you have your nice kind of middle management, white collar job and all that. And um, this pal of mine took me to this club and she goes, you got to get raving. You'll love it. I go, no, 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 no. And then she, she gave me an ecstasy and suddenly, you know, I've invented acid house. Fuck everybody else. This is, <laughs> this is how it's done. Like, <clears throat> <clears throat> so what I wanted to do was um, I wanted, there was two things that really interested me about the club and experience. It was like, um, one thing was, the, there was a, you know, there was a beat, basically. There was a, the 4-4, four four, the boom, 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 boom. And uh, then there was the, the effects, you know, there was the lights and the sort of, you know, the, 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 the sound effects and all that kind of stuff. And I wanted to do that in a book. I wanted to kind of try and replicate that. I wanted to try and replicate the boof, 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 boof. So I thought the you know the English language is a great kind of measurement kind of weights and language type of thing, uh, sorry weights and measures type of thing you know so it's but it's a controller's kind of imperialist language it's not about beats it's not about funk and all that you know, so the kind of uh, the the dialects are much more funky and beaty and you know and because they're intrinsically performative they're meant to be performed rather than written, so that was my beats basically the Scottish dialects and the sort of kind of the the, the gypsy kind of. Um, sort of words and vernacular had gone into East of Scotland, sort of Lowlands dialect, was my, um, was my kind of beat, that was my rhythm. And uh, the typographical experiments, like, you know, words falling off a page and kind of swirling words and all that, was basically like my effects kind of put on top of that. So, you know, my idea was kind of maybe a bit pompously, and a, you know, uh, was to give the reader a kind of like an acid house experience almost, like, you know, a sort of like that big banging clubbing experience. And I wanted the books to have that energy and that attack and all that. Um, so that was that was my, my kind of, um, my, my, my initial sort of idea about how I would kind of uh, set about writing, basically. I want to move away from the writing just for a moment because obviously this is a day, of, a big day in Ireland. There's a referendum happening and last year... There's is there? A, there's a, you, no, you wouldn't know. <laughs> you wouldn't know. Um, Nobody told me. But, there's a, <laughs> but there was a very big one in Scotland last year, obviously on Scottish independence, and you've been very vocal. You've written a lot of journalism about it and you've been tweeting about it. But I read something in the course of all this that you said that 20 years ago you would have thought you were quite anti-independence which really surprised me and I wondered why then and what what changed your mind well I mean like a lot of people are kind of um, bought into the propaganda of it all I mean it's like when you kind of live in um, a place you get the unremitting propaganda that things can't be different that um, you're in some way dependent on these set of relationships and <coughs> living over living over here and then living in the states kind of was quite um a sea change for me because it gave me a chance to sort of um, to sit back and look at the, the politics and the, the economics of um, of the UK and the, you know Scotland's relationship with the rest of the UK and you know the whole uh, the whole way the UK was kind of constructed and it gave me a, a, you know a chance you know a chance to sort of uh, see it in a much more abstract and clinical way um, and also I saw how 
the kind of independence movement in Scotland have changed, basically. I mean, when I was kind of growing up in the 70s, it was very much like, um, it was very anti-English in a very kind of sort of crass way. It was like, uh, it's English's fault, you know, they're doing this to us and all that. And it was that kind of, um, that sort of kind of victim kind of blaming kind of sort of culture. And um, and then in the next phase of it, 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 it changed into, it's nothing to do with English, it's us, it's our own fault. You know, we've put ourselves in this position, you know. You know. So it was like kind of Renton's thing in train spotting, his kind of speech that he makes in train spotting about it, it's, you know, it's not the English's fault, it's us, I hate us, and all like that. And it, it's a step forward, but it's still kind of, that, there's a, the element of self-loathing in it and sort of um, and assuming the victim role still doesn't really help you. But what I noticed is that it changed into a much more, the, the new generations were much, much more pragmatic. Certainly since the parliament and the, the devolution, it led to a greater political maturity. Uh, and people have been looking at the whole thing about uh, who are we and what kind of statehood do we need that's going to suit our, our, you know, that's the best arrangement for us. And I think that, um, you know, like most people in Scotland, I think I was getting kind of educated myself about it. And you're starting to, you start to become um, more removed from the propaganda. And I think uh, this happened very much in the, the two-year period of the referendum. I mean, the, 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 the yes vote went from about 25%. It was supposed to be kind of a, the reason it was, it was allowed to happen was it was supposed to kill independence dead, basically. Um, but it went from 25% to, well, to, to 50, 51% on the eve of the, the poll and then slipped back with the bow and all the, the, the kind of false promises and the intimidation and the sort of lies and stuff like that. Um, and it slipped back a bit, you know, and then now and then you've had the, the surge in the SNPs, uh, basically taken over the, the whole uh, Scottish states in the parliament. So it seems to be an ongoing, it seems to be an ongoing thing, an ongoing story. And it's basically, it's basically not so much about um, the rebirth of Scotland, it's about the decline of Britain, basically. It's about the decline of, um, of you know, Britain's based on industry and empire. And both these things have gone, it's deindustrialized, the empire's gone. Um, the esprit de corps from the two world wars has gone, apart from the older generation who voted no, who remember, who remember that. Uh, all the, the, the post-war consensus, the building blocks of the welfare state, the nationalized industries, um, all these things have now gone too, you know, or, or they're just, they're on their way out. So everything that's, that was kind of, um, that gave British identity has been undermined. So it's not just about Scotland becoming more nationalistic and, you know, and, and and going its own way. It's actually, as it's kind of rushing out the door, it's actually being pushed out the door by a resurgent English nationalism as well. There's no real place, there's no de facto place uh, for it because Brit uh, Britain, the idea of Britain has been replaced by the idea of a kind of greater England. Do you think there will be independence or how soon do you think it would happen? You can't really, I don't know, you can't put, I think it's inevitable that... Um, I think it's. I think almost now the genie's out the bottle. It's very, very hard to. I mean, the the, the over sixty fives kind of saved the union basically, and I think that um, within the next uh, within the next ten years, it's difficult to see that bunch of people who remember the war and who remember that kind of togetherness. Uh, they, they won't be around to do that, you know. So, and it's very, very difficult to see how 
the current political system that's very is, is based on the, the southeast. It's based on a very different economy, a financial services economy. Uh, can offer anything to not just to Scotland but to the rest of the UK as well. You know, so I I don't really see any future in the union. You know, so uh, it's um, I think that uh, I think that the federal model is the one thing that could probably save it, but I just can't see what's in it for the southeast, basically. So I think that, that you know, it is just inexorably kind of pulling itself apart. Is it true that Sean Connery asked you to join the SNP? Yeah, I mean, um, I went to... Uh, <laughs> Random, I know. I went to, years ago, I went to, I got asked to meet Alex Salmon and Sean Connery for lunch in Butte House. And uh, they were kind of just trying to get my support, basically, for... Um, for the you know the for the SNP we're kind of doing the we're, we're kind of um, he just become the the first minister and they were kind of, you know I think they were having the, the next big election they were having for the Scottish Parliament and I was very you know, I, I didn't I mean I was very gagey uh, I, don't, I don't like the idea of joining a political party because I'm just going to let them down you know what I mean I'm the kind of uh, <laughs> <laughs> you don't want me I'm just going to hurt you kind of thing like you know. um, <laughs> So, uh, but they were very nice. They were both very nice and charming and all that. But it wasn't wasn't really for me. I read somewhere that y you said that uh, in terms of train spotting again, that Ulysses was was something of an influence on it, which surprised me and doesn't surprise me in some ways. Yeah, I mean, um, Ulysses is one of the books that I've had the kind of um, I've had the, I've had the, the, the most ongoing relationship with with that book than any other book because. Uh, I first read it in my teens, and I didn't understand a word of it. It just completely went over my head. Um, but there was something about it that made me go back to it again in my 20s. And in my 20s, I still found it very difficult. I still kind of didn't get it, but I got more of it, and I felt that... Uh, and I kept um, the characters specifically, but the kind of, you know, the, 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 the whole view and the scenes of Dublin seemed to lodge in my head quite strongly. Um, and then I read it in my 30s, and it was just like everything seemed to fall into place. You know, I've read it again. I, you know, I think every decade of my life I've kind of read Ulysses. And um, I get more out of it each time, you know. And I, I think the, the reason I stopped looking at it in an analytical way in terms of story and just kind of started to trip on the language, basically. Um, in A Decent Ride, Terry doesn't read Ulysses, but he does read an awful lot of books. Um, everything from like The Great Gatsby to, to Moby Dick uh, and Naked Lunch and William Faulkner. Are they the kind of writers who, who made you want to be a writer, writers that you read and, and devoured and meant something to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, it's it's kind of... I, mean, I, I, I read anything. I mean, I, I started to get into... Um, when the, I started to get into writing because... Uh, to, to reading because... Um, my uncle Jack was a, a fireman, and he was doing this open university degree course. And uh, I inherited all his books. I inherited all his George Orwell and uh, Evelyn Waugh books. And they were the first two writers that I really vibed upon. Um, and Evelyn Waugh kind of writes in a completely different social milieu than me, but I liked the, rela the relationship that he had with male characters and kind of the way he wrote about them and their, their kind of um, their competitiveness and the jealousies and all that that they have. So uh, that was a kind of, um, that was my kind of entry point. And then I got into all the, the, the Scottish literature. And then I got into, I got obsessed with, you know, the Russians like, you know, and Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. And, um, and then um, from there, it was just, you know, it was like kind of uh, 
French kind of European stuff, then the Americans kind of you know Burroughs and Faulkner and all that. So it's a fairly, it's a fairly kind of um, straight down the line sort of um, kind of literary education that I had. Yeah. You, as I say, you don't live you don't live here and you don't live in Scotland anymore. You live in Chicago in the in the US. Um, and your last book, um, The Sex Lives of Siamese Twins, is set there and has female protagonists, which is quite unusual in a lot of your work. But was it inevitable that you set a book in the US and how is it sort of living there impacted on your writing? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, the, this, that last book, it was... See, normally when you write characters, you kind of think... Like, they become like tools to help you in your next project, you know, and you think, uh, I want to write about this, I want to write about the... I want to write about the obesity culture. I want to write about the exercise culture. I want to write about the measurement of people. I want to write about the um, the kind of uh, the, you know the reality TV star making culture that breaking news kind of imposes on people in America. I thought the characters have to be really American. They have to be kind of probably sort of Floridian or Californian, some kind of Sunbelt place. Um, it's better that they're women as well because while these issues affect men in a patriarchal society, women are going to be much more. Um, so kind of subject to these kind of pools. So, uh, so it meant that I had to forge a new set of tools, I had to have new characters, basically. Um, and uh, it was, you know, it was, it was a great book to write for me. It was an enormous fun. It's always great fun to write in different characters. Uh, it's funny. I was promoting this this book because a lot of the translations have came out, and uh, I was in Germany, in Munich. Um, I was doing a tour in German, a tour of Germany. I was doing this kind of. Um, reading off it, I read a bit and then a, a German actor read another bit and we had the question and answer session with the audience and uh, this woman, she she got up and she said um, her question was like, you know, you know I, think, I think she meant to say um, what's it like to, you know, to, to write in a woman's voice, basically but she said uh, what does it feel like to slip inside a woman? LAUGHTER uh, and, uh, you know, I kind of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's no satisfactory way of answering that in a room full of people. Like, yeah. um, it also strikes me as a book that would, that would make a great film, and obviously a lot of the work has been made into film and it's work in progress, and you've worked on some of the scripts yourself, uh, and then obviously Trainspotting was so big, but we, we've seen various film incarnations and talks of TV stuff. How involved do you get, and are there any more planned? Would you like to make more film versions of the, of the books as they stand? Um, yeah, I mean, they're all, they're, in some ways they're all planned. I mean, most of them, the rights have kind of gone for them, and you know they're at very, you know they're at. Some of them will never happen. Some of them will. Uh, some of them kind of might. You know, it's just you know, you, it's um, it's a weird thing because what I realise is that you know, like kind of um, when you embark on uh, an independent filmmaking project, you basically are saying to the people that you're working with, we're going to, we're probably going to know each other a long time. You know, it's, a, it's almost like a lifetime endeavor, and if it happens, great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. So you've got to pick people you work with very, very carefully because they're going to be around for a while. Like, you know, and if they're a total pain in the arse, it's like, fuck, you know, <laughs> what, what have I got myself into? So r the relationships are really important. And. Um <laughs> Uh, you know, you basically, you know, your role as a as a writer is um, you negotiate that on the basis of the the team of people that you're working with. I mean, it's been different for me every time. You know, some have been a 
Some of them have been a producer, some of them have been a consultant, some of them have been a scriptwriter on. Uh, other ones have had no relationship really at all, other than just. Um, and is that, is that hard to, to hand over your work and not have a hand no, in it? No, it's great. I mean, it's like, uh, I think in some ways it's what I would rather do all the time. You know, I would rather just, um, I don't want to be the curator of the stuff. I think a lot of writers get into the, the feeling that, um, that they have to have this book realized a certain way. You can't really control the filmmaker. You've got to give the filmmaker the freedom to make the movie they want to make because they'll have a cinematic vision of it. And um, the cinematic vision isn't about kind of um, making your book into this kind of, you know, you know, you can't make a book into a film. You can only, you, you, you adapt a story and characters into a cinematic language. You know, and if, you're, and if, the, and if the, the, the writer of the novel is, interferes too much and tries to sort of um, impose a novelist mindset on it, it's a very, very dangerous thing. You know, you have to step back. And it's a win-win situation, you know. If they go away and if they make an absolutely brilliant film, then you can say, well, they have my <laughs> fantastic book. How could they go wrong? <laughs> All the great material, great characters. And if they, if they fuck it up, you know, you just say, well, they've messed up my beautiful book. I want nothing <laughs> to do with them. Um, and, uh, you know, but the book's always still there. The book's always still there. You've done your book with the book. What filmmakers do, the smarter ones, they have you involved. You know, they want you to give you some kind of role uh, and some kind of money um, so you're part of the team, you know, so you can't slag it off if it's like an insurance <laughs> policy. <laughs> yeah. You can't slag it off if it's a bad film because, you know, you're on the film, basically. So it's a collective responsibility <laughs> thing. So you've got to, you've got to pretend that um, the bad ones were good, even, <laughs> even when they weren't. Um, before we throw it over to the, the audience, um, I just wanted to ask you, obviously, there's been a lot of novels, the story collections, the screenplays, even a couple of plays. Um, is there anything, what have you not done yet as a writer that you'd like to do? Um, I'm not really that bothered about the medium. I mean, we've been talking about doing a musical for, I mean, I've actually done a musical um, with, with a guy called Vic Goddard, uh, uh, singer-songwriter. And um, there's certain things that, you know, th th it's not so much the medium. I think um, the thing that excites me is starting a new project all the time. You've got the blank page. You think to yourself, this is great. Anything can go on this. And... Um, <coughs> You find something to write about. You find something that kind of excites you and, and kind of moves you and sort of motivates you. And that's the greatest kind of freedom. And you can and you get that every single time. Every single time you go back. Um, and if you don't get that, you shouldn't really be writing. I don't think. You know, you shouldn't just write for the. Same. Thank you.